Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Hello. Um, on behalf of Hastings College of the Law and um, California Lawyer, I want to um, uh, welcome you to Legally Speaking. Um, I want to start by thanking our sponsors, the law firm of Pichet, Petra, and McCarthy, as well as the Bar Association of San Francisco. Um, our guest today is um, Lawrence Lessig of the Stanford Law School. Um, Professor Lessig is um, the C. Wendell and Edith M. Carlsmith Professor of Law at Stanford. He's also the director of the Center for Internet and Society. He is the founder of Creative Commons. He was named by Scientific American one of the top 50 visionaries in the world. He is um, probably the leading figure in the modern world on talking about issues of the intersection of technology and law. Professor Lessig. Thank you, Ash. Why don't we start off by talking about a little bit about your background. Um, where did you grow up? What was it like? <laughs> hmm. So I grew up in a tiny little town in Pennsylvania mm -hmm. called Williamsport, which is the home of Little League Baseball, a place where 80% of the people never leave the city. Um, so what was it like? Um, I've tried to forget exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so your childhood, Little League Baseball, always wanted to be a lawyer, wanted to be president. Oh, of course. Like Barack, I wanted to be president. Um, no, actually, unlike Barack, I really did want to be president I mean, I, um, from, uh, from a very young age. No, I, was, I actually grew up um, very right-wing. I was a teenage Republican. I was president of Teenage Republicans for Pennsylvania. Um, I was the youngest member of the delegation that went to uh, uh, Detroit to nominate Ronald Reagan as our candidate in 1980. Um, so, Excellent. Um, I, you know, my father was... Uh, my father's a capitalist. He, he ran a steel fabricating company. Mm -hmm. So I was very attuned to the world through his eyes. So Republican gets me to my next question. Um, you clerked, of course, for Judge Richard Bosner of the Seventh Circuit and for Justice Antonin Scalia of the Supreme Court. Since I know that your politics changed somewhat somewhere between your youth and um, modern times, how was that like? To probably the two most prominent conservative um, judges of our time. Well, as you know, uh, Posner is the best possible job one could have as a law clerk because um, um, he, does, he writes his own opinions. All he wants a clerk to do is to argue with him. And he wants the clerk to be as vicious in arguing with him as you could possibly be. So I remember once I, in the old days before internet, I was um, in Budapest for the summer teaching and uh, he and I were having a fax war about, uh, about some book. He, this is his Sex and Reason book. So we were having a war about one chapter in the book, and I was writing a letter to him at night, and I'd fax it, and the next morning I would come in, and he would have a response, and it was getting increasingly vitriolic. Um, and after one of these I sent, the next morning I came in, and I, I reread it, I thought this was just over the top. Um, so I sent him, an email, uh, sent him another fax, and I said, uh, you know, Dick, I really apologize. Dick is what he wants you to call him. So I said, <laughs> um, uh, I really apologize. 
That was way over the top. And of course, you know I have enormous respect for you. And he responded. He said, um, um, don't you ever pull your punches with me. I'm surrounded by sycophants. The last thing in the world I need is yet another person not to tell me exactly what they think. So, so I have enormous respect for, for, uh, for uh, uh, Judge Posner. Um, and politics was totally irrelevant. Um, the Supreme Court is a totally different place. Um, it's, it actually, at the time, I feel very young. I, I feel like I was very young because I had this sense, and I don't have the sense anymore. Um, at the time, I was very depressed about the institution. Um, I felt clerks had way too much power. The judges did too little of the work they should be doing. You know, there's um, only Stevens, I think, wrote his, only, his own opinions completely. I mean, the clerks did the footnotes. He did the real opinion. Scalia controlled his opinions. I mean, it was definitely Scalia that came out. But still, there was a lot of work clerks did, especially in the context of picking the cases, or at least driving the cases to be picked. Um, um, uh, when I was there, there was a cabal of conservatives clerks. Uh, they called themselves a cabal. Um, and they, uh, they met uh, to plan how they were going to make sure executions would happen. Right? So, so like the Supreme Court uh, is the last uh, a possible appeal, and every single execution goes to the Supreme Court. And so literally on the night somebody's to be executed, you have appeals being filed, and late to midnight, you've got a clerks who have to stay around waiting to process these appeals. And they would plan uh, in advance to make sure they were prepared with the arguments to rebut anything that was going to be made. As a, I remember once asking one of these guys, you know, you're conspiring to kill someone. You understand that, right? That's what you're doing. Um, this didn't trouble them. <laughs> And oddly enough, the cabal was there next year as well. Yeah, so. that's right. Continues. I have to ask you a question. So I, I clerked in the Supreme Court the year after Larry. And when I arrived, there was a shiny new PC on my desk. And I had been told, and I've never confirmed this, um, that until that year, the Supreme Court was using, I don't know, typewriters, but some Neolithic technology. And I was told that you were personally responsible for actually getting the court, if not into the 1990s, into the 1980s. Is that true? Partly true, yeah. So, um, so we were using this old mainframe system called ATEX, which was a word processing system. And um, um, it had uh, you know, features like search the document. And then it had fast search on the document. <laughs> I remember one of my co-clerks asking as they were training us, why would you ever use slow search? <laughs> Day is going too quickly. Let's just slow this down. Um, so we, we organized and said, this is ridiculous. So we, uh, we approached the justices and said, we should get a different system. And, um, and the justices uh, had a committee, a technology committee. It was Souter and Scalia and O'Connor. She was the chair. And the technology committee agreed to hear our complaints. So the three of them sat in, uh, in Justice O'Connor's chambers. And we set up a PC, and we set up um, the ATEC system. And, uh, and my friend Mark Snyderman would say, okay, th if I want to you know, copy some text, he would show it how to do it on the ATEX. And then he said, if you do it on the PC, you do it like this. So we basically did one by one by one by one. And then finally, Mark said, if you want to look up in a thesaurus what similar words like this would be, and then he got up and he went to the shelf and he pulled the thesaurus <laughs> off. And, uh, but on the PC, and then I clicked the button, and the thesaurus and Scalia went, oh my god, we've got to have this. <laughs> 
so that was on a Friday, and I mean, that was on a, a Monday. That Friday, Justice O'Connor had a meeting with me and Mark and one other member of the committee and the technology people running the Supreme Court and, and said, okay, we'd like to move to PCs. And the technology committee of the Supreme Court started trying to bullshit Justice O'Connor about it's impossible, these are you know, toys compared to blah, blah, blah. And she start, they started trying to you know, make her believe there's no possible way to do this. Well, the one thing you don't do, if you've ever watched oral arguments, <laughs> when Justice O'Connor was a justice, is you never try to bluff Justice O'Connor. Um, and at a certain stage, she recognized that's what hap was happening. And she said, okay, I've heard enough. This was a Friday. She said, on Monday, every single ATEX machine will be out of this office, and on everybody's desk, there will be a PC. She, and, the, and, the, and the staff said, no, Justice, we can't. I've heard enough. So we all walked out. And then the staff comes up to me. You know, I was the enemy to that point. But then they came up to me, and they're like, can you please talk to her? Please talk to her. There's no way we can do this. It would be a dis so I calmed her down and, and we started a process to make the shift. But yeah, that's you did. And by the end, you actually had use of the stuff. That's right. I feel very proud. It's probably the only thing I've ever had before a Supreme Court justice, which is a PC. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for your efforts, personally. Um, so another thing, early career. You were at the University of Chicago from 91 to 96. Um, there was a, another person there at the same time who has a different job now. What was it like teaching with Barack Obama? Uh, so um, the most amazing thing about watching Barack become president was the sense that the authentic feeling people had about Barack Obama was exactly the Barack Obama that I thought I knew. Right? So I, I knew him. He wasn't a buddy, but we went out to dinner a couple times, and we you know, were friends at, around the law school. Um, and exactly that person, exactly who I felt I understood at that point, was who he seemed to everybody throughout this campaign. Um, and having people sort of say, he can't really be that person, and having this recognition inside me, I just wanted to scream it. No, he really is that person. That is exactly who he is, was enormously rewarding. And, you know, and I remember from the very beginning having the sense he should be in public life, and I said to him, like, well, I think the first time we had dinner, I said, you know, you should, you should be a politician. And he said, he said, people like me don't get elected, by which he didn't mean, <laughs> <laughs> by which he meant, you know, you know, people with this kind of sensibility about things. Um, I'm glad he was wrong about that, and I was right about it, um, but um, he was an, he's an amazing person. Interesting. So he didn't, at that point, wasn't committed to public service yet. He was still uncertain. Well, he was committed to public service. But I mean elective office. But elective office, yeah. no. no. Oh, interesting. Are you responsible for him being president? No. <laughs> That's his kindergarten. <laughs> Eldred. So you litigated the Eldred versus Ashcroft case all the way to the Supreme Court, um, challenged the Copyright Extension Act of 1998, looked like you had some good arguments, right? First Amendment arguments, copyright clause arguments, didn't turn out so well. Sense of, I mean, this is the Supreme Court, that, and Justice Ginsburg writing the opinion of all things, that going the other way. This is the Supreme Court that I think of as being sympathetic to free speech arguments, you know, if not all other rights. What do you think happened? Well, so... Maybe we should take a step back and explain the Eldred yeah, case. So, um, Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act was passed on October 27, 1998. Before that, I didn't care or know anything about copyright law. I was doing work about the relationship between law and technology, 
and just beginning to look at copyright law, because that was a very interesting example. Um, but the Sonny Bono Act gets passed, and it extends the term of existing copyrights by 20 years. And I remember reading on the New York Times online edition the story of this guy, Eric Eldred, who was going to engage in civil disobedience. He had intended to put a whole bunch of Robert Frost work up on his, the World Wide Web, um, because that was about to pass into the public domain, and now it wouldn't pass into the public domain for 20 more years. And he said, to hell with this, I'm just going to do it. And, uh, and of course, unlike civil disobedience in the South in the 1960s, where you, you know, might go into jail for overnight or something like this, civil disobedience with copyright is a serious matter. This is $150,000 per offense, um, and, um, and uh, I was not eager to see him do this. So I began looking at the matter. Now, um, the Copyright Clause says Congress has the power to promote the progress of science by securing, uh, to author, uh, by securing four limited times exclusive rights to authors. Um, that's the copyright part of it. And, you know, you look at that and you look at the original context and the framers' understanding of this, and it was absolutely clear that what they were intending to do was to create a limited monopoly power but avoid exactly what Congress was doing. Avoid the ability of the monopoly owners to come in and buy an extension of the monopoly. That's why it's a limited term. So um, Congress was respecting limited in the sense that my five-year-old respects limited. When I say, you can have one cookie, and I turn around, and he's taken four. And I say, what's going on? And he says, I've taken one four times. Right? That's, uh, <laughs> that's Congress's sense of limited. Um, so I had this sense that, uh, that the conservatives, for whom I had just clerked, right? Conservatives, for whom the original meaning of the Constitution was everything, who had just struck down a uh, Commerce Clause uh, claim on the basis of original understanding, who were fighting in all sorts of contexts to respect the framers' rights, I, I, I figured we could just race to the Supreme Court and get those conservatives to see how Congress had wildly exceeded their power. And if they did, and we did that, they would vote with us. Um, and I remember after the oral argument thinking, um, there's no way those five conservatives can say anything about this statute which uh, respects their method of interpreting the Constitution. Um, it never even occurred to me that those five conservatives would, would be silent in the case. Right? So you have, a, you have a majority opinion written by Justice Ginsburg, who of course is deeply deferential to what Congress does, and a dissenting opinion written by Justice Stevens and by Justice uh, Breyer, um, who, uh, you know, dissented for the, uh, we, we were pretty sure, we were absolutely sure we had those two. Um, I went into the case thinking we would have, it would be 7-2, right? We'd have those two plus right. <laughs> five judges uh, from the conservatives, and there would be two dissents. We did have 7-2, but it, of course the five conservatives um, silently joined the majority to uphold congressional power. Now, um, why did they do it? Well, one very striking moment in the middle of the case um, was when Justice O'Connor said to me, um, she said, I, I just don't understand how it's possible that something could be constitutional under the copyright clause, yet unconstitutional under the First Amendment. Justice, every time something's unconstitutional under the First Amendment, it has been constitutional under some grant of power. Otherwise, you wouldn't have had the ability to pass the law in the first place. right? And so it's, these are two separate issues. But it was so clear in their head that somehow there was an automatic um, validation of copyright 
by the First Amendment that you couldn't even raise the question. So, so that was the first thing. They just had this, this sense that there was a self-ratifying uh, First Amendment flavor to anything copyright. And the second thing is, uh, you know, I think a fundamental strategic mistake in the case. Um, and that is that um, the case had been framed and all the, you know, press around the case had been talking about this as if this is a case about Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse Protection Act. Right, right, and, right. Every time Mickey Mouse is about to pass in the public domain, they extended the term of copyright. Right. And, and, it's, and of course, to explain why this had happened, that is a very important part of it. It had been this dance by old copyright owners, Disney the most responsible for extending term around the world. But most people, even today probably, but certainly then, um, would look at that and say, why shouldn't Disney own Mickey Mouse for the rest of time? Right? It's not clear why... You should limit the term of a copyright, especially to somebody who you know, has a very successful copyright. And what we didn't focus enough on uh, was the other half, um, the 98% of works that is no longer commercially available, that's forgotten, and yet continues to be burdened by copyright because of this indiscriminate extension of copyright terms. So by focusing on Mickey, it made it sound like we were in some sense attacking the private property of copyright. And if we'd focused on the orphans, you know, these works that nobody can do anything with, um, I think it would have been easier to get the court to recognize why there's the public domain half to the progress clause, why it's important to protect the public domain. Um, uh, and then it wouldn't have seemed like we, you know, we were perfectly willing to concede Congress could extend the term uh, as long as they required um, um, you know, some affirmative act on the part of the copyright owner. Uh, we actually had a subsequent case here in California, um, which was on behalf of Brewster Kale in his Internet Archive and Rick Prelinger in his film, um, um, that basically, you know, said um, at least say that you've got to require that copyright law distinguish between works that are commercially available or you have some access to and everything else that's invisible. Um, otherwise, you're going to lose a whole generation of American culture. And... Um, that case didn't go far, although we have another case in Denver that's continuing to actually prevailed in the Court of Appeals under the First Amendment. Um, but, but I think it really is about getting the court to recognize what was salient. And, if, and for me, losing that case was enormously important because, you know, I had been like a classic liberal law professor who thought every social problem is solved by racing to the Supreme Court and getting the Supreme Court to rule in your favor and then justice will be done, right? And, of course, the reality is we've got to change people's minds about things in a democracy. It's about getting people to understand why something is right and getting them to tell their, their representatives to vote in the right way that uh, is essential. So losing that case is actually what shifted me towards uh, building you know, institutions like Creative Commons and um, literally giving more than 500 talks in the last five years about these issues around the world to get people to focus on them. Uh, and, you know, obviously not just because of my work, but I'm actually extremely optimistic that the movement has developed to a stage where most people get it and pressure is on Congress to do something sensible. It'll be 10 years before Congress wakes up to that pressure, but I, I think that we're on the right trajectory now. We'll come, I, I actually want to get to Congress for sure, and we'll come back to that soon. Um, I wanted to, at this point, talk a little bit about um, Remix, your most recent book. Because fascinating read, um, and it talks about issues and about the way in which the Internet is being used right now in ways which I think aren't necessarily familiar. They probably are familiar to our children, 
but are, certainly were not familiar to me. Um, and you talk about, starting off, you talk about read-only cultures and read-write cultures and sort of the distinction between them on the internet. What, want to explain that? Right, so I was tricked, I tripped into this recognition. A friend sent me a quote by um, uh, John Philip Sousa. Sousa was testifying in the United States uh, Congress in 1906 about the, quote, talking machines. So here's Sousa, maybe the most famous professional musician of the time. Um, and he's blasting the talking machines. Um, and he, he says, when I was a young man in front of every house in the summer evening, you would find the young people together singing the songs of the day or the old songs. Today you hear these infernal machines going night and day. He says, we will not have a vocal cord left. The vocal cords will be eliminated by a process of evolution, as was the tale of man when he came from the ape. And, and it struck me, here's this professional musician who's celebrating the amateur. And it thinks that the amateur is an essential part to culture. It's not because he thinks the amateur is better than he is. It's because he thinks culture depends upon the amateur, right? These young people together singing songs of the day or the old songs uh, is what makes culture vibrant. Teaching people how to play the piano or to play the violin, this is what is essential to continuing to keep culture alive. And he was fearful of a culture developing where we were all passive recipients, listeners, couch potatoes, and not creators of culture. Well, he was right. The 20th century was exactly how he predicted it would be. The 20th century was the century where we developed this practice, most of us, I certainly did, of consuming culture. But the idea that you would actually create culture was alien. I mean, my, my, my wife is German. I mean, literally, her, her you know, citizenship and her parents came from Germany. And, and they had traditions more like, you know, the old days, um, where around Christmas they would get together and sit around the piano and sing songs. And, and I always felt it was weird, right? You know, <laughs> I, I felt like CDs. That's why you had CDs to play. We're um, now iTunes today. And, um, but, you know, they're from, that's the culture they're talking about. Uh, and so it, it suggested to me this distinction between a culture where you both consume and produce, read-write, you know, in the sense of what a computer permissions allow you to do, read-write, and a culture where you only read-only, right? And, and the 19th century back was read-write, the 20th century was dominated by read-only, and the 21st century is read-write. Once again, we're back to a place where everybody feels not just the need to consume as much as they can, but also increasingly a need to demonstrate their understanding by creating and remixing and sharing their uh, creativity with others. So I grew up, the great expression of creativity was the mixtape, right? Well, kids today remix the music. That's, you know, if you don't know how to make a, a YouTube video um, at the age of 15, there's something deeply wrong with you, right? And, <laughs> no. uh, and, and that's exciting. That's a really positive development for our culture, even though it's illegal, all of that. Well, I mean, my daughter's got the, the video down at 10, so we're, we're making progress, but not yet the remixing. And I, the remixing is intriguing. So read about Girl Talk, this remix band, um, band guy, and I was intrigued, never heard of it before, old fogey. Um, and I went online and I listened, and it's fascinating stuff. I mean, you're quite right. But it's, as best I can tell, and you can confirm this, it's all someone else's sound, right? He's not actually making any sound. That's right. Why is that worth preserving, as opposed to making him actually learn to play an instrument? Well, to remix well, 
you know, and hip-hop taught us this many years before, but to remix well, you invoke sounds that have a certain meaning in the culture. It's not just the sounds. It's the fact that the sounds come from a particular band and a particular song at a particular time. And you overlay them on top of each other. And, and it's the mixing of them together that's mixing meanings together. Right? So it is like writing with text and quoting you know, sections of Shakespeare and sections of Hemingway and putting them together in a way that gets the meaning from the things they're pulling together. So why is it important to preserve it? Well, I look at it the other way around. I say, um, here's an artist whose work is increasingly in demand. Like, and this is a genre of creativity, increasingly in demand. What reason does the law have for stopping it? What reason is there to silence this creator? And whereas I'm perfectly okay with copyright law silencing all sorts of activities, like copying you know, Madonna's latest album and sharing it with your 10,000 best friends, I'm okay with that. That's, that's a proper uh, suppression of speech on behalf of copyright law um, and consistent with the First Amendment. I don't see any plausible argument that says the copyright law should be stopping what Girl Talk or Shepard Ferry or any number of these other artists are doing when they're taking and transforming and remixing work for the purpose of saying something different. And that's exactly what uh, Girl Talk does. Follow up on that, because um, I was actually thinking about playing a clip from Girl Talk to give an example, but I was having trouble finding clips that did not include inappropriate language, so I gave up. But, um, <laughs> but here's the thing about I, I actually really like the stuff. But here's the thing that I have been asked, and I didn't have a good answer to, which is supposing that you are the 10,000 Maniacs, and you don't want your music to be associated, your art to yep. be associated with the kind of mixing that he's doing, right? Because it's being associated with perhaps misogynistic music. Um, why shouldn't you, as the artist, have the right to exclude that use? Right. Great question. Um, because the intuition among musicians and the intuition among filmmakers mm -hmm. is that what copyright law is about is about my power to use the force of the state to stop people from associating my work in certain ways. Now, switch over to the author's page. Mm -hmm. right? My work gets misused all the time. Right? It gets used for purposes I have nothing to do with, that I'm outraged that somebody would you know, use my argument for it. But the idea that I should be able to march into a federal court and get a court to order them to stop seems to me outrageous, right? because from the from the world of text, we understand an essentially democratic character of text, which is that democratic in the sense that everybody learns to write. We want everybody to learn to write. And part of learning to write is to have the freedom to quote and to incorporate inside of your work. Now, of course, you've got to cite. The only uh, crime for which I think the death penalty is appropriate is plagiarism. <laughs> right? um, so, so I'm completely OK with, uh, with rules about citation. But the freedom to remix other people's works into yours in writing is as natural to all of us as, um, as breathing. Right? That is what free culture requires. And so the question is, which of these traditions should dominate the 21st century? The tradition of the musician, you know, who's made millions of dollars off of his music and now whines because somebody associates it with something he doesn't want it to be associated with, um, or the tradition of writers whose work has tradition always been associated in ways that they don't want, but they have to learn to suck it up. And my view is a free society requires you learn to suck it up, right? Uh, so, you know, the beginning of the book, I tell the story of, of um, Stephanie Lentz. 
going to ask you about that. Yeah, so Stephanie Lentz um, had a 13-month-old named Holden who, walking uh, in the kitchen, all of a sudden starts dancing because in the background on a uh, CD player, the music of Prince was playing. And Holden had heard this song played at the, um, at the uh, Super Bowl a couple weeks before, so he was really into it, so he starts dancing in the incredibly cute way the 13-month-old dances. And she grabs her video her, her, her digital camera and captures it, and then wants to share it with her mom, and so um, uploads it to YouTube and sends her mom the link. And of course, Universal Music learns about this outrageous violation of copyright law by synchronizing Prince's music to Holden's jerky dancing. Um, and you know, sent a cease and desist notice uh, to uh, YouTube to have it taken down. Now that was an expression of exactly this culture of control that musicians and filmmakers feel is natural. Like it's outrageous that Prince's music should be abused in this way. Um, and, and I just look at it as, a, as evidence of just how outrageous a certain part of the law has become. Like, you know, get, you know, you're a prince. How much money have you made in this culture because people love your songs? And if you can't tolerate a mother sharing images of her 13-month-old dancing, then, you know, that's your problem. It shouldn't be a federal court's problem. So where did this culture develop from? I mean, part of it is, you know, you're right. As I think about it, writers, it would never occur to a writer. You know, it's that you're, you can control what purposes your work is cited for. And my bet is, for example, if you had asked a musician who wrote a song 150 years ago, can you control if someone sings the song in an inappropriate venue, they would look at you like you were nuts. Right. So why, do this, why does a modern generation of musicians, filmmakers, basically the, the entertainment industry, believe that they have a right to this control? Where did it come from? Well, it, I think it came from a, a norm of control. And the norm of control was possible because it's a, it was a relatively concentrated industry. Um, you know, so think about filmmakers, you know, doc, of uh, feature films. Um, uh, you know, it's a small number of people dealing with each other in that context. And it's easy for them to develop the norm that says, if you're going to use somebody else's work, you're going to have to get permission for it. Even if it's a fair use, you need to get permission for it. And the permission society norm that, that pervades, for example, documentary film is all because it's a, it's a concentrated place where they're producing this stuff, as opposed to writing, where you know, anybody can write. So the idea that you would try to enforce a norm like that is ridiculous. The fact that you would even try to respect a norm like that. Right? So you know, imagine a 15-year-old calling up, uh, well, this happened to me. Somebody read my, my book, Free Culture. It was a book before this one. Some teenager in high school wrote the book, read the book, wrote me an email and said, um, I just finished your book, Free Culture. It's fantastic. I'd like to quote it in an essay. May I have permission? <laughs> Perhaps didn't get the point. <laughs> I was sure it was like a joke. I engaged him. We went back and forth. He really genuinely felt like, so maybe his father was a musician. I don't know. But, but the point is, you know, it's... It's just crazy, uh, but, but you can understand why the industry would develop in one way versus the other. But what's so, you know, really tragic about it, again, think about documentary film. Um, documentary films during most of the 20th century were made with the following rule. You wanted to make a documentary film, you wanted to quote 60 seconds from CBS. You would contact CBS and you would say, we'd like to have this little clip in our film about civil rights in, in the South. CBS would send you a license. The license would say, number one, 
you agree the only right you have to the 60 seconds is governed by this license, meaning you're waiving fair use rights. Number two, we're going to grant you a five-year North American educational license to use this, but that's the extent of the license. But what that means is after five years, you want to release this film again, you've got to go back and clear that one license. Well, these films can have hundreds of licenses inside them. Right. So there's literally no way to legally distribute these films after a relatively short period of time. Forget copyright. This is all about, this is all about the underlying contracts, and these yeah. contracts are perpetual. They go forever, right? So, so, you know, they built this whole world of our culture, never thinking about the environmental impact of this way of building culture. Um, uh, and so, you know, whereas we have basically, we have access to basically every published book since the Gutenberg Bible. Mm -hmm. right? You can go into a library, open it up, read it, it's there, or get copies of it, distributed, you know, because it's in the public domain. The vast majority of um, documentary works from the 20th century will literally disappear. They're, they will be on a stock that will turn to dust before anybody figures out how to clear rights to make it so that we can get access to them. That makes sense to me. And you know, one understands how a culture clash happens. I mean, the documentary example is not particularly a new technology example. But with new technology, one can easily see a culture clash. And you know, girl talk, I can even see, I don't agree, but I can see the perspective of some of the artists. I do not get Stefan Lentz and Holden Lentz. I'm just, I'm trying to envision this conference room where Universal's lawyers are saying, let's sue this 13-month-old because he's threatening what to Prince? So what? I'm sure this is what happened. I, you know, I, I didn't feel it was my duty to be as charitable as I possibly could to the, <laughs> the, to the Universal lawyers. But in the most charitable view of the Universal lawyers is Prince is a lunatic, right? right. Um, <laughs> I don't have proof, but let's just submit that maybe he is. And the prince says, you know, you've got to make sure that none of my music is on that thing YouTube. So they just have these people whose job it is to listen for or have machines that listen for prince's music and take every step they can against it. So, so that, you know, they do that. And then fortunately, you know, EFF, who, on whose board I used to sit, I don't sit anymore, but who I continue to support very strongly, took the case for free to defend Stephanie Lentz and got them to run away very quickly. Um, uh, but not everybody, not EFF can't take every one of these cases. There are literally thousands of these things filed in the context of, of YouTube. YouTube, I, I mean, the most interesting thing for me happened during the presidential election in this context. Um, uh, uh, John McCain <clears throat> became a copyright uh, radical during the presidential election because YouTube had a, has a policy, three strikes, you're out. So if your channel gets complained about more than three times, they're going to turn the channel off. Well, during the political season last uh, election, uh, campaigns began to recognize that this was now another nice tool that they could use against the other side. So they would just file copyright complaints against things on people's sites. YouTube doesn't have to adjudicate those complaints. They just say, okay, here's a copyright complaint. We're going to take it down. We're going to put a strike against your marker. Three times and your, two, your channel is shut down. Well, you know, you're running in the middle of an election and your YouTube channel goes down for three days. That's serious business. Um, well, they were threatening to do this with McCain and McCain wrote this outra you know, outraged letter saying this is plainly fair use and you have got to exercise judgment to stop the suppression of free speech. You know, Justice O'Connor didn't get it, but John McCain did. Suppression of free speech. Um, mm -hmm. 
And, uh, and YouTube responded with, you know, you wrote the laws. We're just doing what the laws say. We can't do anything about it. It's not our job to make a judgment about this. So they continued to threaten to shut them down whenever. Um, and, and I think that the experience began to get people on the right and the left to recognize this is a serious problem, um, not just people on the left. Do you know if McCain voted for the DCMA? I'm sure he did. <laughs> Absolutely. That's so sort of hoisting the yeah. card thing as well. Um, so remix as opposed to file sharing. I assume, you know, you were accused of wanting to destroy all copyright and, you know, end it. I assume that is not true. You just, basic yeah, file it's sharing. It's more than that. It's more than that I don't want to uh, destroy copyright. You know, I think that this debate is dominated by two extremes. The copyright extremists, Hollywood types, and the, uh, and the copyright abolitionists, people who actually believe we don't need copyright anymore. It was a nice idea for the 20th century, um, but we just should get rid of it. And you, and you engage an abolitionist, these are not stupid people. You know, they're typically between the age of 15 and 25, very, very smart hacker types. Um, uh, and you say to them, well, you know, uh, if you got rid of copyright, you couldn't have any Hollywood blockbusters, essential, in my view, like an essential part of culture. Uh, but they say, who cares? You know, we don't have opera anymore. You know, it's not like the world came to an end because we lost opera. We will lose Hollywood movies. You know, maybe we'll have fundraisers to make us so we can make Hollywood movies in the future. But, <laughs> but it's not like culture needs Hollywood movies. So, like, we'll just get, on, get over it. So, so there are people who actually believe copyright should be abolished. I'm not one of those people. Right? So I feel kind of like Gorbachev rather than Yeltsin, right? I feel like an old communist who's just trying to update the system to make it make sense in a new time. And there are these radicals like Yeltsin who want to come in and totally wipe it away, right? And, and my fear is the Yeltsinites always win in this debate. So I think it'll be a worse culture if we lose copyright. I think it'll be a poorer culture, not just in the money sense, but in the diversity sense. Um, and, and so I, you know, things like Creative Commons are devices for, for keeping copyright alive in a digital age. Um, uh, and, and I'm uh, absolutely opposed to people who want to abolish it. I just think it needs to be updated. That's the... So let's talk about that. I mean, the music industry is already suffering badly. Um, it may be on its last legs. There is a decent possibility that now that broadband is becoming ubiquitous, that same is going to happen to the video industry, right? I mean, it's, uh, we don't know, but given every other technological development in the last 20 years, it seems rather likely. So where do we go from here? Right? And how do we, how would you help, them? I'm not sure you really want to help them out, but how would you help the record companies and the, and the, um, and the movie makers out? I, I, you're right. I don't care at all about the record companies. Right. Right? Um, you know, I, I wonder how many 15-year-olds even understand what a record is, right? <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's not, what I care about is musicians, right. artists. And in fact, more people make money making music today than in 1995. Right? Digital technologies have expanded the opportunities of people to make money with music. Um, they're, they're, gonna be, they're not going to be as many Justin Timberlakes in the future. <laughs> no? Okay. I understand how some people are upset with that, but I'm not terribly upset by that. You know, um, so there's not going to be as much of these kind of superstar, you know, uh, engineered phenomena like Justin Timberlake and, and, and NSYNC and people like that. Um, but there will be wider range of opportunities for musicians and now record companies need to remake themselves and figure out what they are. Right now there is a function for what the record company did. The function is not you know, facilitating the distribution of pieces of plastic or vinyl. Um, the function is 
how to market artists and make market make it so artists can connect to their natural the people who are naturally likely to want to listen to their music how to present their music all sorts of things that you know agents in the book world do right. um, you know help you uh, make your art successful uh, and and that industry will flourish and get much more important what will disappear is an industry that you know, in some sense, wants to stand between the consumer and the artist uh, and, and control distribution as a way to create a rent that they get to seek. That, that industry will disappear, and I have no problem with that. There are places I think we have serious problems we have to worry about. Like, for example, journalism is a, is a space it's, that is a place where, you know, as much as I cheerlead for the Internet all the time and as much as I think people like uh, Craig Newmark are, you know, heroes in the world, um, um, the fact is newspapers are collapsing around the world because the market has radically changed what it means to be a newspaper. Um, used to be newspapers were enormously profitable businesses, and now you can't make it. You can't make it as a newspaper anymore. And the reason that's so devastating is newspapers are the most important, in my view, check on uh, local government, corruption in local government in particular. And... Uh, investigative journalism, which is all newspaper-driven. There's no such, you know, s s 60 minutes notwithstanding, there's no such thing as investigative journalism in the context of television, right? So when newspapers are decimated, um, uh, where are we going to get real investigative journalism? Now, I'm all for bloggers. I'm all for what bloggers do. Josh Marshall and TPM is a big hero of mine. You know, that, it's, that's important. But I, I worry that we haven't figured out yet how to fund the production of this inherently public good investigative journalism and and the internet has made that a really important problem yeah i'm very i, I am from a i'm married into a seattle family so the the eliminate the death of the seattle pi was very big news it was my wife's paper growing up mm -hmm. um and the seattle pi is a major seattle paper that just went out of business and a lot of people have been commenting on this it seems to me those are very linked issues the music issue and the journalism issue because in both situations the problem is you've got these content generators right i mean whether it be investigative journalists or you've musicians and they need to be paid. And the problem is, is the intermediary, the, whether it's the newspaper or the record industry that traditionally used to distribute their good, their, their product, no longer have a viable business model. So how do you, I mean, the question, I guess, occurs, and I, I'm not, maybe there's a difference between journalists and musicians, but I'm not sure there is. What do you see as the model emerging in the future to get these people to actually earn a living? And, you know, I, the stars will always earn a living, but, you know, someone who's a moderate-range musician or an investigative journalist in a middle-sized city like Seattle, not a New Yorker. Well, you know, again, I think musicians are an easier problem to solve. Um, uh, you know, I once interviewed uh, Jeff Tweedy of Van Wilco, and, um, you know, he, he said what I conceive of myself as, as is somebody who performs for people. That's what I do. And I go around and I have concerts and I perform for people. And, uh, um, and my roving band of musicians is a life which is what it means to be a musician. And of course he produces albums, which lots of people buy. Uh, um, uh, and the freer he makes those albums, the more people buy them. Um, uh, but, uh, but this is the conception of what music is. And it's not removed from the people the way Madonna is removed from the people. It's in among the people, right? It's, it's, uh, it's a much more democratic conception of, it's a troupe, it's a roving troupe of, of abandoned musicians. Um, the journalist is harder because, um, if you've met many journalists, they're very intelligent, smart people. They're not sexy, 
no, that's the real problem. Um, <laughs> it's hard to get you know the compelling thing that's going to drive people to want to fund them um, uh, in the way that people want to give Jeff Tweedy money. I don't know why, but that's that's the dynamic. And and I think it's a really important social problem. But what's interesting is, you know, between these two problems, one the musician, which I think actually we have a way of solving in the context of the internet, and the other, the journalist, the attention of Congress has been all focused on the musician, right? The one which in some sense is the, not really a problem, and even if it were a problem, not so significant to the democracy. The journalist, that is a real problem. That is unsolvable problem as far as I see right now. That is crucial to the democracy, yet that's totally unimportant to the politicians. You can see how from the point of view of Congress, investigative journalism may not be yeah. your first cause, <laughs> which gets us to actually the next topic, which is your new um, venture. Um, new organization, you, you helped start in San Francisco, Change Congress. Um, you want to talk a little bit about it? Right, so, so about a year and a half ago, I, I announced that um, I was no longer going to do any work in the area of IP reform, intellectual property reform, or internet policy. This book was actually finished, but it took a long time for the publisher to get it out, so I've been drawn back in because of this book coming out. But um, what I said was, um, after a decade, I recognized that, you know, I should have, one of those moments when you realize you're not as smart as you thought you were. It shouldn't have taken a decade to recognize this. But um, after, you know, realizing that no matter how hard we made this argument, Congress is still making the dumbest possible decisions it could make. Um, I realized that it had nothing to do with their stupidity. Right? It had everything to do with the fact that um, they, were, they were making dumb decisions because they paid well. Right? These dumb decisions actually were very profitable to them, not in the crude corruption sense, like they were being bribed. I think our Congress is more ethical than any Congress in the history of Congress. That might not be saying much, but still, I think it's progress in that sense. Um, uh, instead, it's paying well in the sense of the sort of decision that helps them make sure they have money to get back to Congress. Um, and, and then, just at the time that I was coming to recognize this about copyright, uh, I was watching Al Gore. Um, uh, I, I got to see him give his speech a number of times and then watch the film. And, and if you remember in Al Gore's film, and especially in his speech, he focuses this on this point as well about global warming. Uh, that so much of the delay in global warming is caused by the same kind of corruption, political, the political system being driven by money in a way which um, gets members of Congress not to focus on what is obvious and true, but what, is pay, what pays well for getting them back to office. And it struck me that if it wasn't just esoteric questions like copyright, but the most important problems that we face as a nation or as a world, as a planet, like global warming, that if in both of these areas money could drive Congress away from doing what Congress ought to be doing, then it was time that we started focusing on this underlying problem. Um, uh, so we launched, so a year ago, we launched Change Congress, indeed a year tomorrow. Um, uh, and the objective was to try to build a movement for reform around this institution. Right? So um, everybody was excited about the presidency, and of course, whether John McCain won or Barack Obama won, um, the presidency was going to be restored. There was no doubt that we were going to have faith again in the presidency. But Congress, you know, last July, Congress's approval rating for the first time in history fell into the single digits. Um, there are more people who supported the British crown at the revolution than support <laughs> Congress today. There's an institution where the natural feeling we all have is deep cynicism. 88% of people in this district believe 
money buys results in Congress. Um, and so we, you know, if Barack Obama is the picture of authenticity, Congress is the picture of duplicity. Like we have no, nobody believes that what they do, they do for the right reason. Um, uh, and, and this is ultimately, I think, the biggest problem because what that means is um, we don't try to engage Congress. We don't pay attention to it. We don't try to get them to do the right thing because if you don't have a lot of money, why would you waste your time? Uh, um, so we've been focusing and change Congress about how to build a moment of, uh, movement of reform around changing this institution. And in my view, the silver bullet here is to break the link, whether real or just perceived, between money and results. And the only way to break that link is to change the way Congress funds its elections. It's the only way w that will make it impossible for you to believe that the stupid thing they did, they did because of the money, as opposed to because there were more Democrats than Republicans or more Republicans than Democrats or whatever. They don't understand it. At least you could have a real Democratic-like discussion with them about it as opposed to this discussion about it because they, they took more money. Um, so we've been pushing um, uh, to get what we call citizen-funded elections. There will be a bill introduced next week by Durbin and Specter um, that will support this. It's basically congressmen get money to run for Congress from two sources. One is a chunk of money from the Treasury once they demonstrate their viability. And second, they can raise as much money as they want in $100 contributions or less. $100 maxed out for any citizen. Um, if that were the system, you could not believe Congress did what it did for the money. And then we could begin to have a conversation of why do they do what they did. Um, uh, and we could restore this, this part of the conversation. Now, to do this, so how do you, how do you build this kind of movement? Um, there are two things that we're doing. One thing we're doing is trying to show with every single issue that people care about, it's the money stupid. Right? So you might care about global warming. Well, we can show you a thousand reasons why global warming is as screwed up as it is because of the corruption of money. You might care about health care. You know, can show you why your pharmaceutical bills are so high because of the money. Well, you might care about um, you know, global trade. Uh, I can show you the exact same thing with global trade. Whatever the issue is, I can show you the connection to the money. We want people to begin to reflect on this so that they come back to recognizing And until we fix this problem, we're not going to be able to fix any of these other problems. So the metaphor that I use here is, um, is like um, uh, it's a dependency Congress has, a dependency on money. Um, so think about dependencies. Like think about alcoholism. Right there isn't one of you who hasn't been hurt by or hurt others because of alcoholism. Right? It's a pervasive dependency in our society. It's extremely destructive. My own family, it was totally destroyed my family, this disease. Um, so you look at the alcoholic and you say, he might be losing his family, he might be losing his job, he might be losing his liver. These are extremely important problems. The most important problem you can face as a human being. But what we all know is that until he solves his alcoholism, he won't solve any of these other problems. And so too is it with us. You know, the, we have enormous problems we face as a nation. But until we solve this dependency, um, we're not going to solve sensibly any of these other problems. So this has become the sole focus of what Change Congress is trying to do. A couple of obvious sort of follow-up questions come to mind. One is, frankly, why you? Um, you know, the idea that Congress has, I mean, your, your statistics pointed out itself. I mean, certainly the American people are aware of this problem with Congress, if not with the details. So what do you bring, sort of with your background from the West Coast, technology, you know, you've typically worked, I mean, the people who you've been working with have tended to be tech, technological people and sort of in 
you know, copyright people. What's, what does Change Congress bring that's new? Well, it's important it's based in Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley is filled with people um, who, in a sense, didn't make money the old-fashioned way. Right? So if you think about the robber barons, they made money by screwing as many people as they possibly could. Right? And they understood and accepted a system where you got ahead by cutting deals and by figuring out how to uh, break your competition and all these things that are inherent in the kind of corruption of a bad political system. People out here don't have that sense. They're kind of outraged when they go to Washington and they, and they have to deal um, in a way that makes them feel dirty. Right? They, 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 have, they have to deal with doing what they're doing, trying to advance their ideas by also talking about how they're going to run fundraisers for the candidate that they're trying to persuade about why they're public policy. And so that, that's an opportunity. You know, I'm not saying it's enough, but that's an opportunity, number one. Number two, the only way this is possible is to leverage uh, hacker culture. Right? Um, I, I think there's like a period of five years where people in power don't quite yet understand the Internet. And um, the Internet has a chance to change the way power is distributed um, so that there's a real opportunity to get something for these next five years that you can't get uh, um, after this period of time. So, so connecting it to the Internet culture is a critical part of making this succeed. Um, uh, and thirdly, um, I think that this is a moment when people have this taste of fundamental reform, taste for fundamental reform that you know, happens once a generation. Uh, and so uh, if we can focus the right people with the right motivation using this new technology on this change, uh, I think there's a real chance we could actually get it. Um, that, that brings me to my second question, which is to me, I can see a lot of what you're saying, but the second question is the hard one, which is, is that it seems to me there's an obvious reason why members of Congress oppose public funding of elections, which is, is that they have a huge advantage as incumbents in raising money. So public funding threatens their jobs. Why would they ever, ever move to such a system? Because it would have to be them, right? I mean, it would have to be Congress that would adopt a system of public funding. Absolutely right. Um, well, there are a couple things happening. First of all, Congress, the experience of being a congressman has radically changed in the last 20 years. Um, these are just overpaid telemarketers. That's who they are. They spend 30 to 70% of their time in little cubby holes with things on their head, dialing for dollars. That's all they do. Right? They go to Congress thinking that what they're going to be doing is you know, legislating about how to solve problems. Just think about it. In the middle of these crises, a significant number, member, number of members of Congress are spending most of their time on the phone raising money to get back to Congress. So they're not reading the bills. They have no clue about what's in the bills. And they feel outraged that we are outraged that they don't understand that they passed a bill that explicitly said that the people at AIG get to keep their uh, bonuses. Right? They're outraged that we would be outraged that they would pass such a bill. How are we supposed to know what's in the bill, they say? Right? But, but of course, how are they supposed to know what's in the bill when they spend most of their time calling people up asking for money? They hate that system. They hate it. There's nobody who loves it. Now, you're right. They're scared of an alternative because they're not sure they can win under the alternative. Um, but I think what we've got to do is we've got to leverage their hating the system with our own kind of threat here. So what, we, what Change Congress has done is um, you know, we learned the first lesson of the internet, which is you can always get people to do what they already want to do. Okay? Well, 
Nobody wants to give money to Congress or to politicians. So we've launched a strike. We say, we want you not to give money to members of Congress. We want you to join the strike, say that you will not give money to anybody who does not irrevocably commit to supporting citizen-funded elections. Um, so we, you go to our website, change-congress.org, fill in your information. We'll figure out how much you gave in the last cycle. We'll count that as on strike. Um, and we build an uh, amount of money that's been pulled out of the system. So we launched it about a month ago. We've got more than a million dollars out of the system right now. We can multiply it up by 100. That would mean 10% of the money spent in congressional elections has been withdrawn from the, the system. Now, at a certain point, as 2010 comes around and Rahm Emanuel in the White House and the Republicans sort of recognize this is the most important election um, for the Republican Party, no doubt, uh, um, they're going to be anxious about this money that's out of the system. And it will create, we believe, sufficient pressure for them to at least put this as a priority on their change so that this, this can be lifted, this uh, change can be removed. And, and that's our bet. If we, can, if we can do that, create that kind of pressure, we can get the at least the Democratic leadership to take it seriously. Do you think it matters which party's in charge? Big change, obviously, 2006, Democrats take over. 2008, new president, more receptivity? No, I, I, do, I actually don't think people realize how dangerous the situation in Washington is right now. Um, because, again, it's, it's of relatively recent origin. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the la since Clinton left office, the number of lobbyists in Washington has doubled. The average price per hour of a lobbyist has doubled. Now, the only way you can have a supply going up and a price going up is if the productivity of the input is going up as well. And the productivity of this input is going up radically because the system in Washington is all tuned to making the lobbyist happy. And the reason for that is lobbyists go into congressman's office and they'll say, we'll run this fundraiser for you if you support this bill. Now, that's technically a crime, but they do it all the time, right? This is just the way business works. The lobbyist becomes the source of money that this addict, the member of Congress, needs, right? And rather than making 25 calls, this lobbyist is taken care of, you know, 25 of my calls just by this one support, introduce this one bill. So the members of Congress are constantly attuned to what the lobbyist wants. But worse than that, staffers, business models is I'm going to work for Senate Finance Committee for four years. Then I'm going to go work as a lobbyist. I'll triple my salary. Right? So I want to keep the lobbyists happy because once I walk out of this, I'll walk into a real job that gives me real money. Even members of Congress, it was described to me, one of my favorite members of Congress said to me, Congress is now a farm league for K Street. And it's like many of our students, right? You, they go to Congress, they get paid $170,000 a year. So like our students are associates getting paid some of them more than that a year, right? Um, they'll be associates for four to six to eight years. Then they'll graduate to being a partner. So too with members of Congress. They go to Congress for three or four terms. Then they retire. They go be a lobbyist. They get paid half a million or a million dollars a year, right? So the point is everybody in the system is focused on how we make sure we keep the lobbyist happy. And the lobbyist, in turn, turn to America and say, Rather than investing that dollar on making a better widget, invest that dollar in, in, my law, in my lobbyist firm because my return from that dollar is higher than the return that you can get from inve inventing a new widget. So there's an enormous distortion 
in our system right now. And we're just beginning to see the product of it. I mean, the, the collapse in the financial system you know, is directly a product of exactly this kind of influence. Um, uh, and uh, it's only going to get worse until we, until we break this in a way that, um, uh, that I think is right now essential. Do you think the Obama campaign was a model for a sort of new kind of campaign, or do you think it was largely like not really distinguishable? Greater use of the internet, greater reliance on individual contributions, you know, all I of that I think the stuff. Obama campaign makes people believe it's possible to have citizen-funded elections. Um, um, I don't think you could just rely upon citizen funding. I think, you know, a chunk coming in from the Treasury is essential, okay. at least to get people to opt in. Um, but I do think that what he did makes people think that it's possible. Um, and I think he's committed to it. And I actually think he's committed... I mean, I know he's committed to reforming presidential election system. So Feinstein, uh, Feinstein's going to introduce a bill about presidential elections. And this congressional election can piggyback on that. We will have one chance in the next four years to reform the way election law works. And we've got to link these two together and change at the Congress's level as well as the, uh, the federal government, uh, president's level. Last couple of questions moving on to personal life. So rumor has it you are on a beautiful March day like this. You are contemplating leaving for Boston. What brings that on? <sighs> Not even contemplating, leaving for Boston. Yeah. We are extremely depressed about the leaving part. <laughs> it um, won't be sunny and warm. No. <laughs> so when I announced that I was going to do this project in corruption, Harvard has an ethics center, uh, university ethics program, that said do that research there. So the project on corruption is not just about corruption in Congress. I think of it as institutional corruption by which I mean good people doing legal ethical acts, which has the consequence of making an institution less trustworthy. So think about doctors accepting money from drug companies, sitting on panels that review those drugs. Um, what they're doing is legal. They are good people. What they're doing is even ethical as long as they, as long as they disclose. Um, but the consequence of that system is that people are less trustworthy when public health tells you that, for example, vaccines are safe. And the consequence of people being less trustworthy is the number of people, parents refusing to vaccinate their children has gone through the roof, leading to an enormous spread in these deadly diseases because of this, because of this decline in trust. So there's a, a classic example of what I think of as institutional corruption. It exists across a num number of really critical institutions, including public education, including the legal profession, including Congress. Um, and so this center will focus on thinking about uh, doing work in this area for the next five years. So um, it was the only opportunity I was going to get to do this kind of research, and I had to take seriously my commitment to the research and plead with my family to let me at least have five years back in, uh, back in Boston. Um, great. Well, thank you very much. I think we've, we've been going, going at it for an hour, so maybe we should open it up to questions. Um, So um, I agree, network neutrality is a central problem. Um, and 
It's an issue that I've done a lot of work on. I think I was the first person testifying in Congress who referred to this as network neutrality. Um, in, um, it was the week before the argument in the Eldred case and testifying before John McCain's committee. Um, and, uh, and we've been working very hard with groups like Free Press to make this a central part of, um, central part of uh, uh, public policy for the Internet. I'm actually extremely optimistic about it. Number one, we have a president who strongly, firmly, absolutely, irrevocably committed to supporting network neutrality. Number two, we have a chairman of the FCC, Julius Janikowski, who strongly, absolutely, without doubt, firmly supports network neutrality. Um, the problem now is the details of how this gets implemented. And as we've seen with every significant reform proposal, in the details is where the lobbyists do their dirty work. So, you know, the prescription drug benefit, perfect example. The one thing the Bush administration was going to do for social welfare, right, prescription drug benefit for seniors. Uh, in Part D of this uh, proposal, the lobbyists slipped in a provision that said the largest purchaser of drugs must buy those drugs at retail prices. They can't negotiate for lower prices. So it was basically a bill that was solely about guaranteeing the drug companies that the biggest purchaser pays the highest price possible for their drugs. Now that was exactly because of the problem in the way the system functions. So um, I'm not telling people they shouldn't work on and worry about issues like network neutrality. I think it's a central issue. But I am still fundamentally convinced that until we change these more basic fundamental process issues, even if we get good policy, it will be corrupted in the way that it actually gets implemented. You talked about your um, political transformation. Uh, what was it? When did it occur and, and why? <coughs> well, so I, I, I think it occurred when I was in law school, or, or no, I guess, so I, I went to university, then I went to Cambridge and studied philosophy, and then I went to law school, uh, then I went to law school. And in some sense, there's a way of looking at my political views, and they haven't changed at all, which is they're essentially libertarian, right? I think they're a more, um, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not a libertarian in the sense that I think there shouldn't be government. Uh, and I don't understand the important need of government to intervene to create the conditions under which societies can flourish. I'm very much committed to, committed to that. And I would vote, you know, as a liberal in our American sense much more than I would ever vote as a conservative. But the central thing that I think linked my political views was the sense that what we should be doing is trying to give individuals a chance to flourish. What are the conditions under which they get to flourish? And, you know, justices on the Supreme Court, like Justice Brennan would think of, you know, would call himself a libertarian. He was a libertarian. Like all the liberals in the Supreme Court are about how do you make rights um, significant, salient in modern society. So, you know, one sense of it is, I think what happened is I just became more and more aware of complex structures of society within which we embed libertarian values. And, uh, and that cashes out now as being a liberal Democrat rather than being, uh, a, you know, a Ron Paul libertarian, but, um, but I think the animating idea of what was important to me, the salient idea, I think is pretty much the same. Yeah. Um, uh, so now I know I'm not sexy. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
I've written about you a couple of times, and uh, in explaining this change of your focus from copyright to co corruption, very often people will sort of roll their eyes and say, you know, corruption, hello, it's the next oldest thing to prostitution. People have tried this before. Uh, nobody's going to get rid of it. So um, could you give me two or three things I could say that could, you know, give the rest of us a little bit of hope? Yeah. So um, first of all, in fact, I think we've done an enormous amount about corruption in our society. Um, you know, I think the 19th century was a cesspool of corruption. Uh, um, Congress is filled with people who thought that their job was to go and get as much as they possibly could. Um, you know, there's a famous letter, Daniel Webster, a prominent member of Congress, writes to the Bank of the United States. While the Bank of the United States is created by Congress and regulated by Congress, um, revealing he was employed by the Bank of the United States. He writes, you know, if, if, if the favors be, if you wish my favors to continue, it might be, uh, it might be appropriate to send me the usual retainer, right? explicitly soliciting a bribe from the Bank of the United States. Um, bribery is not a crime in Congress until 1856. Right? So this is a period of time where people think, um, you know, the public trough is something you go to and feed from as much as you can. And it's, it's relatively recently that you have members who think, primarily, that their job is to go and serve the public, right? So, you know, my uh, ex-congressman, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Tom Lantos, who spent his whole career in Congress after, you know, uh, suffering the burden of being in a concentration camp in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Europe, um, was it, in some sense the picture of what it, what what, what representatives could be. They thought that public service is what they wanted to do. And, 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 you know, many of them, especially more recently, have extraordinarily idealistic views. And, and the idea that corruption in the sense of feathering your own nest corruption is the problem in Congress, I think is extremely naive. Of course there are exceptions. There's, you know, Rand, uh, there's uh, Randy Duke Cunningham, there's Ted, a series of tubes, Stevens, right? Those are, there's Rob Blagojevich, those are people you know, we're just crude, corrupt in the old sense of the word, but that's not the problem. And the fact that that's not the problem is evidence that we can actually make progress here. We can raise the standard. Um, and so this problem that I'm focusing on, like good souls corruption, good people doing legal, even ethical acts that produce this corrupting of our process, is a relatively new problem, I think. Um, uh, and I am optimistic that the more they recognize how they are destroying democracy by this, the stronger they're going to have the desire to do something about it because at their core, they are good people, right? The problem with, you know, the traditional Bogoyevich kind of guy is you try to reason with a Bogoyevich and you say, you know, you're destroying democracy. And he says, well, you know, it pays. What the hell? What do I care if I'm destroyed? Because that's, you know, he's a corrupt person. But, but people like, you know, think of Chris Dodd, um, the number one recipient of AIG money, responsible for the provision gets slipped into the bailout bill that says that AIG gets to pay their um, uh, bonuses, um, despite the compensation limits. Um, Chris Dodd, is as good a soul as there is in Washington. He wants nothing more than to make the world, the America, a better place. Um, 
But you begin to point out to him how the fact that he received all this money and slipped this into the bill raises in the minds of many the question, maybe Christod isn't who we think Christod is. Christod will be the first person who wants to change that reality. Right? We just, I just got in a lot of trouble because we, um, we attacked John Conyers, a man I have enormous respect for. Right? He's the last remaining member of the Judiciary Committee that impeached Richard Nixon, founding member of the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, he's done enormous good things in his career in Congress. But he introduced a bill that would make it, would make it so the NIH is not allowed to require that government-funded research be published in an open access way. It had to be that that research would be published by proprietary publishers so that you know, Americans would be paying twice for the research, once when we fund it, and second when we pay the publishers to get access to it. Indeed, what's so perverse about this is that John Conyers comes from districts where they support Buy American provisions, things I think are idiotic. But the publishers he would be pr pr protecting by this bill are foreign publishers. So this is the Foreign Publishers Protection Act. Right? This is a bill which 33 Nobel Prize winners, the current and former head of the NIH, all have signed letters saying this will harm science. So why is John Conyers introducing this bill? Well, Maplight, a, a California organization on whose board I sit, did a study and found that sponsors of this bill received twice as much money from publishers as people who didn't sponsor the bill sitting on the same Judiciary Committee. So you put those two facts together, a bill that 33 Nobel Prize winners say will harm science, uh, and you got all this money from publishers. It turns out not to be a lot of money, but you know it's Washington. They come cheap. Um, and those two things go together, and people say, what the hell, John Conyers? What's this about? And John Conyers is outraged. You know, he, writes the, he writes a scathing piece in the Huffington Post attacking me, saying, the idea that you have crossed the line, Professor Lutz, to suggest this. You know, and, and my response is, well, if you don't want people to make this connection, then change the system. Change the system. You know, 25 years ago, a chairman of a committee would not have accepted money from the interests he regulated. Today it's natural, right? And, and the simplest thing John Conyers could do is say, I'm not going to take money from publishers. So I'm happy to take money from my constituents or other people who want to support me, but I chair the committee that regulates publishers. I'm not going to take their money. But until he does that, I think it's fair game. We're going to cross this line as many times as we can. And, e and when I do it, you know, when I talk about this, I try to emphasize how much faith I have in these people. So I, I go, when I give this talk about corruption, there's a story about Hillary Clinton, right? So, there's a, something called the, um, there's a great film called uh, um, Maxed Out, the story of credit card debt. And a uh, fantastic film. It's a terrible problem. Um, one of the reasons it's such a problem is that the uh, Bankruptcy Abuse and Consumer Protection Act of 2005, um, it's actually not a Consumer Protection Act, a little bit of a typo there, but um, <laughs> Bankruptcy <laughs> Abuse Act of 2005 uh, basically says that you can't, use bankruptcy to escape credit card debts if you're lower middle class. You're like, if you're bottom poverty, okay, you can. But the rest of us can't. You literally carry credit card debts forever. Right? Um, so this bill was originally proposed during Clinton's administration. He was originally in favor of it. Then Hillary Clinton read an op-ed by Elizabeth Warren in the New York Times pointing out how destructive this bill would be. And she started referring to, quote, that awful bill, the small b, 
um, as the, <laughs> as you know, this bill that she was going to stop. And she's she's reported to have single-handedly convinced Bill Clinton to veto the bill, pocket veto the bill. But the bill came back, and when it came back, this was no longer First Lady Clinton; it was Senator Clinton. And when it came back, Senator Clinton had received $140,000 in contributions from financial service companies. So in 2001, what did she do? She voted for that bill twice, that awful bill twice. So you say, why did you change your vote? And she, of course, says it has nothing to do with money. And I absolutely believe it has nothing to do with money. But the point that she and every other politician has got to re realize is, what percentage of the American public will hear that fact and believe it had nothing to do with money? You know, 0.04%. That's exactly the percentage, right? Everybody else believes they know exactly why she changed her vote. It was the money. And the point is, that means we all believe the system is bought. And if we believe the system is bought, we have no faith in what they do. And the only way to change that is to, is to, is to restore some ability for them to say, I'm doing this because I believe in the, in the policy, or there's different circumstances. So what's the reason why this might actually work? Because they will want it to work. They will want this change, because they want to think highly of themselves, because they're not there to cash out and make a billion dollars. They're there. Most of them are there to do the public service. And if we can make it salient that the public doesn't trust them because of this problem, it's a cheap way for them to buy out uh, of that problem. Isn't the part of this problem, isn't the part of this problem stem from a Supreme Court decision that I, I believe anyway it said that corporations have free speech rights? And therefore, they, they have the right to, to put money into campaigns, et cetera, et cetera? Well, um, certainly the problem would be less severe if the court hadn't decided that. But there's nothing in citizen funding of elections which would require the Supreme Court to reverse any of its decisions. Because um, this is not trying to silence anybody from speaking. So you can still have corporations funding speech however they want to fund it. You can still have 527s that fund their own independent campaigns. All this proposal does is it says to a member, we want you to opt into a system where you do not accept contributions greater than $100, and you get money from the government. Okay. Now, it's a candidate's free speech right to say, I will not accept contributions more than $100. So you're, you're asking the, the candidate to Well, right now, you can't directly give corporate contributions to federal candidates. You can in states. You can in the state of California, right? But through, through PAC or lobbyist money, you're right. You're right, they're going to opt out. And this is a system modeled on Arizona and Maine. Both have had this system for many years now. Um, Connecticut just passed it last cycle. 88% of, um, of the incumbents opted into this system. So if the numbers are proper, then you create an incentive for people to opt into the system, and they're basically opting out of accepting that kind of money. There's no constitutional problem with that, at least under existing law. Now, the Supreme Court sounds like it just wants to strike down every single public finance or every single campaign reform act. <coughs> if they do, then we're going to have to be a harder battle. We have to fight it in constitutional terms. But I don't think we're going to need to do that. I think, um, I think, uh, in fact, we'll get um, we'll get a bill that the court will be able to uphold. Anything else?
do you think Clinton changed her position? Well, <clears throat> so she changed her position twice. She changed her position in 2001, and then later she changed her position back to her original position in 2005 when it came up again. Um, I think that when she changed her position originally, she thought to herself, I'm in a different position from being First Lady of the United States. When I'm First Lady of the United States, I'm talking about what's in the United States' interest. When I'm Senator from New York, I'm thinking of what's in New York's interest. And New York, as we know, has a deeply uh, embedded financial services industry, which is directly affected by this legislation, would have been vastly benefited by it. Now, I'm not saying I would have made the same judgment, but I can understand how the Senator from New York thinks that she needs to worry about financial services companies. I, what she eventually recognized is she also had to worry about the extraordinary number of lower middle class people who were spending their whole life paying $15 a month payments to their credit card companies and would be until they died because of this bill. And that's what eventually led her to actually not be, she was not on the floor that voted against it, but, her, but that's when Bill Clinton had his, his bypass surgery, so she had a good excuse. But she eventually spoke against the bill. So she went back and forth on it. But I think perfectly explicable in terms of what it means to be a senator from New York. successful? And what are your uh, criteria for determining success? Well, when, we, when I started doing this work on corruption, uh, I actually thought that um, it made sense to do this even if I thought there was no way to succeed. I mean, I was convinced this is the most important problem or the first problem we've got to solve. And it might take one or two generations to solve it, but it's got to be solved. So I have this enormously um, uh, uh, lucky position of having a job where I get to say what I, want, what I believe, and I can't be punished for it. Right? There, there's almost nobody in our society who's not independently wealthy who has that position. It's, it's, the, great, it's the great benefit of... of um, this independence that gets created by the, by the way we pay academics. So many academics say idiotic things, no doubt. Many academics say biased things, whatever. I'm not saying it's guaranteed that what academics say are true, but it is to guarantee that at least there's one space in our public discourse where money doesn't matter. And I realized, you know, I was in a position I could afford it. I didn't, you know, I had tenure at the greatest institutions in the country. I, I, I could do what I wanted to do, and I thought this was the most important thing to do. So that was to say, even if I thought it would fail, it was the important thing to do. But I actually think this is going to succeed. Um, because in my view, success is convincing Congress to embrace citizen funding of elections. And in a world where they want to do it, where we are outraged right now by the consequence of them not doing it, where every single week we're going to have another story we can point to that demonstrates how corrupting the influence of money here is. Um, and where uh, we have a president who came into office promising to change the way Washington works, um, those things come together in a perfect storm of opportunity. Uh, um, so my, my measure of success for Change Congress is, do we, by the next presidential election, have a citizen-funded system for funding congressional elections? And if we do, then we're going to move on to other important problems to worry about, like gerrymandering, redistricting issues, making sure 
our votes actually get counted properly, that we have confidence in that. All that stuff is important process stuff. But until we get this first thing changed, none of those are really important. I'm curious to see um, how you think the role is of the national parties, the two-party system in America, um, as far as how it helps what you're trying to do with finance reform. Because, of course, um, it will open up the door for more third-party candidates, hopefully. And um, if you think that you're going to meet opposition to them, why they're Yeah, so, the, so both parties um, don't want this change. Um, and inside of the Beltway, both parties are in denial about this issue. What's most uh, exciting to me is outside of the Beltway, <clears throat> the latest poll that I saw from Lake found that 69% of Americans, 71% of Republicans, 68% of Democrats supported this citizen funding proposal. So people outside of the system think this is a no-brainer. People inside the system realize it threatens their power. And they will resist it as long as they can afford to resist it. So that's why we're trying to create enormous pressure on them to adopt this change. Um, and uh, in the framework of a reform presidency, um, where all of our attention is going to be focused on the, the scandal de jure, which is where our attention is right now with the AIG mess, um, um, they're going to want to get away from that. They're not going to want to have to constantly live their life with everybody thinking they're criminals. Um, and this is the cheapest way for them to do it. Um, and I think the biggest challenge is, and I've committed myself as a, as a recovered Republican um, uh, to doing this, is, to, is actually to make this salient for Republicans. Uh, and, um, and I think this is an argument Republicans should get. Like I was on a talk show in, in, in Denver Republican talk show in Denver, and the, the talk show host is like, oh, you're completely wrong. The first thing we have to do is we have to um, get a flat tax. And I said, you know, we will never have a flat tax as long as we fund elections the way we currently fund elections. The reason the tax system is as complicated as, as it is, is it creates an enormous opportunity for Congress members to leverage the complexity for, uh, for raising more money. I mean, there's this great story. I tell him I talk about Al Gore in 1994 when um, he tries to propose reform of the Communications Act to take the internet-related components of Title II, DSL, internet-related components of cable, cable internet, and put it under a new Title VII and uh, deregulate it, not even, internet, not even network neutrality regulations, basic interconnect regulations. Takes the ideal to the Hill and the message from the Hill is, hell no, if we deregulate these people, how will we ever raise money from them? Right? And so a person on the right needs to recognize that this kind of extortion is common in regulation. Like you regulate far enough so that you have a lever to pull when you need to raise money. Call them up, say, you know, I, I regulate you, I realize that, but realize I need some help here. And what do you think the lobbyist is going to say? Of course, I'm going to help you. Um, so until we get citizen-funded elections, the right's hope of shrinking the size of government is hopeless. There is no hope for it as long as we have uh, privately funded elections. And then the people on the right say, well, how much will it cost? Well, if you take the amount of money the Cato Institute estimated in 2001, one year, went for corporate welfare, what they call corporate welfare, transfers to private interests that have nothing to do with the public good, that number will fund 80 years of 
citizen-funded elections. 80 years. Just that one year. So, of course, I think everybody should worry, be worried about how much the government spends. Um, if you take just the bailout to AIG, that would fund 130 years of citizen-funded elections, right? So this is a drop in the bucket compared to what the American government spends. And if it purchased faith in what the American government did, that would be worth a billion times whatever we spend. lobbyists to, uh, and, and corporate contributors to dry up and blow away under the system? No. I don't think lobbyists disappear, and I don't think they should disappear. I, I think lobbyists are an essential part to the system, just like lawyers are an essential part to what the Supreme Court does. But the difference is, as a reformer we used to talk about, but we don't talk about anymore, John Edwards used to say during the campaign, there's a difference between the lawyer standing up before a jury and arguing his case and the lawyer is standing up before the jury and handing out $100 bills as he argues the case. And that's the difference lobbyists don't get. Right? So, so I think we need lobbyists who go to members and explain to them why their legislation is going to screw up some industry or why their legislation is going to harm some national important issue. That's essential in the political process. It's the right to petition, and that ought to be protected. But there needs to be a clear line so that members do not depend upon the lobbyist to get back to Washington. What members ought to worry about is what the voters will do, not what the lobbyists will do. So they won't dry up. They'll just be paid a lot less because the value of their service will be much less. They'll have a valuable service, but it won't be worth as much as it's worth right now because right now they've essentially bought the American government and they can deliver to their client whatever their client pays for. That's the corruption that has to change. All of, all of the great arguments for publicly funded elections notwithstanding, if you were to bet on it, what do you think the odds are that by the time Obama leaves office, we're going to have it? 40%? So why so high? Because, well, first of all, so we're part of a coalition of about uh, 17 different groups that have been working on this issue for the last 20 years. Um, and it's, you know, this is optimistic, I know, but uh, I think that people believe that the public is close to being focused enough on this issue, um, that they'll just be t sick of it. They just can't stand it anymore. And Congress is sick of being, of having their integrity questioned. I mean, John Conyers' response, writing a, you know, 1,200 word um, diatribe against me because I questioned his uh, integrity as he saw it, um, is a signal of how sensitive they are. Uh, and if our campaign can make them squirm, and if people join this campaign to make them squirm, I think they'll be motivated to do something differently. Um, and, you know, this is the freshest Congress in the past 40 years. There's no, more people in this Congress that are first freshmen than in 40 years. These guys will hate their job when they realize what their job is. And they will be eager to find a way to get a different job. And a different job would be a job um, that actually uh, didn't involve spending all their time on the phone. And then there are you know, other parts of their job that are, you know, would also change with public funding. So I think Obama was wrong not to agree with John McCain that earmarks are a terrible problem. Not because earmarks are a significant part of the budget. They're not. But earmarks were the core mechanism that facilitate the corruption of lobbyists. This is the first thing lobbyists did when they went to sell to their clients. You know, they explicitly say, I guarantee you 
we will get your earmark, right? And they get, take the money and they get the earmark. Um, now, if you had citizen-funded elections, I don't think there's any problem with earmarks. I think we need government to spend money and need to spend it smartly. My congresswoman, Jackie Speer, who replaced Tom Lantos, um, has set up a citizen commission that's actually hearing testimony from citizens about where the earmark money ought to be spent um, and giving her recommendations on the basis of that. That's a perfectly fine process for picking earmarks. But it's not a process that depends upon this corruption uh, that uh, the lobbyists play into the system with. Um, so, uh, so I think you know, there's all sorts of things that members like to do that would be sanitized if they had citizen funding. If we can just make it salient and support it with a wide enough range of uh, political perspectives, I think they can do it. So 40% is... is and that leaves 60%, you know, the, the, the odds that it won't happen. <laughs> I might be remembering this incorrectly, but um, didn't Obama turn down the federal funding so that he could receive more private funding? Yes. Do you have any comments about that? So I was very disappointed when he did that. I think he hurt, in the short term, public funding. But I think that it actually created a strong incentive for him to fix the system. When he turned it down, he said, I'm turning it down because the system's broken. And it was broken in the sense that the amount of money that it was providing relative to the amount of private money that we knew everybody was going to raise, like the Republican National Committee was going to raise, meant that you couldn't actually compete um, as a Democrat uh, and su successfully because of the way the system was funded. So he has already signaled to Feingold that he will support Feingold's reform of that system. And again, what I think the strategy will be is to, is to marry congressional funding to that presidential funding model. He will have to push the presidential funding model. He was a co-sponsor of the congressional funding model when he was a senator. So he will support, I believe he will support that as well. Um, and I think that's what makes the opportunity for this actually to happen. You've talked about getting people on board from different political perspectives to make the change, but how do you appeal to people who are completely apathetic about how government works? Yeah, um, that's very, very hard. And some people are, so there's some people who are apathetic just because they couldn't give a damn no matter what. I don't think there's anything to say to those people. But there's some people who are apathetic because they don't believe there's any reason to be talking to government because they think government doesn't want to listen to people like them because they don't have money to go in there. And I think that those people, the thing for them to, to focus on, to get them to focus on is, if we could remove money from the system, there would be a reason to be involved. Um, uh, so, so making them recognize the potential is the way to bring them in. But, you know, quite crassly, our strike is successful only if we get the people who have been involved in the system to go on strike, people who have been giving money. Right? So that it's very interesting as we've been talking to these people, the extremely wealthy people who give an enormous amount of money, they don't want to have anything to do with the strike because they actually like the influence their money buys them, right? It's the people who give $500 to $1,500 um, who get, you know, pinged after pinged after ping from members um, trying to get them to give money that is the core sweet spot for our, um, our, our campaign. We want those people to say enough is enough. Um, um, you know, I, I have this weird experience. I've given... Um, more money than I should to political candidates. And so I have this weird experience of 
constantly getting calls from members of Congress in my, at, off, at my work. And, um, you know, it's hard as a law professor not to take a call from a member of Congress because, you know, in some sense you have a public service to be served. But literally 99% of those calls are calls asking for money. And most recently, it, you know, I got Jackie Spear was trying to call me and I was like, oh my God, I don't want to have to say no to Jackie Spear. Um, and then finally she called my cell phone and I um, was caught. There I was talking to Jackie Spear. And she wasn't asking for money at all. She was asking me to serve on her commission to oversee earmarks. You know, and I felt, this is awful. I'm, I'm dodging members of Congress <laughs> because I think they're asking for money when they might actually be doing you know, people's work, which is what she was doing. <laughs> members of Congress, telemarketers, you know. Yes. <laughs> You've made me work very hard on it. I think you have to let me I go. I think we will let you go now. Okay. Thank you very much, Larry. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.